Hello and welcome to the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson, the podcast designed to give you all the financial advice you'll ever need. This is episode 105, where in a moment, we're in conversation with Charlotte Ransom of NetWealth. That's on the way, like I say, in just a second. But please bear in mind, if you have a general financial query, you're in the right place because we have an enormous resource of free advice right here. You can access, access it all simply through delving into our back catalogue of shows. Because in our programs today, we featured loads of stuff, pensions, investing, wills and powers of attorney, and loads more. You name it, we've done it pretty much. And last week, we chatted about receiving a windfall, what financial implications it may have, and how best to manage any given situation that results from that windfall. Remember, we can drill down and focus on pretty much anything forensically. Find the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson on Apple or whatever you get your podcasts, and you'll get us there. As I say, an enormous resource, all available for free. Find our previous shows after listening to this one and have a binge on what you need. While you're there, if you could rate and review us, for instance, you could tell us what we need to address to help you out and follow the show. And then that way you'll get that episode when we record it next time. I'm John Ellis. With me as always, the star of our show, Phil Anderson. Hi, Phil. Hi, John. How are you today? Good, thank you. Now, another guest on the show this week. We're delighted to have her on. Charlotte Ransom is the CEO and founder of NetWealth. And that's all I'm going to tell you for now because... I want the rest of it to come out during our chat, if possible. First, Charlotte, if I can, just in terms of housekeeping and to point you in the right direction here, Phil's the one with his name above the door, so to speak. He's the finance guy, our expert on the show. I'm here representing all the people who sat across the desk from financial experts, nodding approvingly, but clearly vacant and devoid of any understanding of what's been explained to them. The people who walk out thinking, well, it must have been for the best because that's what the advisor suggested. Our show tries to make your world more easily understood by mine. So if I glaze over at any point, I've not lost interest. You're not boring me, but I may have lost the thread of what's going on. And don't be surprised if you have to send me away with homework or a fact sheet for help. Okay, that's our bit. Now, I wonder if you'd be so kind as to, uh, to tell us your background, how you've got to where you are today as CEO and founder of NetWealth and its specific purpose in the world. Yeah, thank you. And hi, both John and Phil. It's great to be on the show and congratulations to getting to 105 podcasts. That is uh, quite something. Yeah, just to give you a bit of background on me, I had an indirect route to finance. I studied modern languages at university. So I think it was really my competitive juices that meant I moved into investment banking when I saw that all the guys at university seemed to be interviewing with banks back in the day. So I went along for an interview, landed a job with JP Morgan, was there for five years before moving to Goldman and spending 20 years there, a partner for 10 of those years. And then I I quit after 20 years at Goldman and I explored different bits of technology for a while and then ended up co-founding NetWealth in 2015. And really, we designed NetWealth to sort of keep all the best bits of traditional wealth management and then to use modern technology to give clients just a much better access to information, control over their assets, and also trying to drive much lower all-in costs. So we were kind of focused on you know, the things that matter, really robust investment management, access to human advisors, security over data and assets. But then building that new technological framework that gives people just much more clarity around how their money is performing, what's happening to it, and and then being able to offer that at around a third to a half the cost of traditional wealth managers. I think it's worth mentioning as well, John, that Charlotte's background is hugely impressive. I mean, she she worked at Goldman Sachs and 
was a, a partner there. I know Charlotte's also been recognised one of the 50 most influential and she's awarded, I think, was it Wealth Manager of the Year and Woman of the Year in, in 2019, I think, Charlotte, was that right? Yes, that's right. So congratulations on on all your achievements. I think it's great seeing more like advances in, in sort of wealth management. I mean, I, I think it's great to see technology kind of advancing all the time. And one of the questions I had, I, I was keen to ask, so, so you're a partner at Goldman Sachs, you're clearly doing really well. Why, why did you feel the need to leave there and launch Net Wealth? What, what kind of prompted that? And was it quite daunting to undertake at the time? Yeah, you know, you're not the first person who's asked me that. And um, I, I left really because I felt like I had another big thing in me, but I didn't know quite what it was. I'd been in banking for a long time. I'd had four kids along the way, and I wanted to sort of step back in order to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I became fascinated by what I think is a really strange conundrum, and that is that we all work so hard in order to earn enough money to look after our families and do the things that matter to us. But fascinatingly, for many, you know, once we've made the money, we start to lose sight of it. So, I mean, we sort of hand it off to to a group, to a person, and we simply don't engage properly with it. And John, you sort of mentioned this at the outset when you were introducing the show, that there's this sense of disconnect between us and our money. And I think it's a little bit down to the way wealth management services have been provided historically. And so funnily enough, actually, before we decided on the name net wealth, I wanted to call it love wealth. And that was mainly because I wanted people to nurture their wealth the same way that we nurture anything else that we love. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> but starting a new business, you know, yes, daunting, but also hugely exciting. I feel so passionately about what we're doing. I think it's really worthwhile. And, you know, sometimes I do look at the emails I get from clients about their excitement about kind of having found us. And I don't think that many other CEOs of the big wealth management firms are getting those types of emails. So it's also a really personal personal mission for me because it wasn't actually till I left banking and I realized that I was one of those people who had neglected their own finances, ironic though that may sound. And I started to look into what needed to be done and how to address it. And that was really when I decided net wealth was the right direction of travel for me. Being the, the sort of non financy one of this partnership, Charlotte, Phil tends to drip through me little tidbits before a show. I think he reckons it, it may help me to look more intelligent, but I fear he's fighting a losing battle. But what, what does interest me here, though, from a human point of view, is this one morsel that he slipped me before we started recording. He said, Charlotte has a passion for working to disrupt the status quo in wealth management. He didn't really elaborate on that. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that you might. I mean, you've mentioned that you do things now for about a third to a half of the cost of traditional wealth management companies. You mentioned about bringing things online more so that people can actually see what's happening. If you're trying to disrupt it, A, when you were sitting there initially, what did you think was really wrong with it? And B, to what effect are you trying to disrupt it? Mm -hmm. So I think it began with the fact that wealth management just hasn't really adapted to modern times. And, you know, it's interesting, if you look across finance, if you look at lending or you look at banking, technology has, has become integrated into most areas of finance, but it hadn't actually moved into wealth management. And I think what none of the current providers have really worked out is how to blend great human expertise, which I think is absolutely central, with modern technology. And I don't think it should be either or. And I do believe that humans will remain and should remain central to the provision of financial advice. But technology can also make a massive difference. And I think, you know, it's 
insight into how our money is invested. It's how is it performing? It's bringing costs down like we spoke about. It's understanding the impact of different factors. So, for example, lots of people at the moment talking about inflation, uh, people talking about the fact that returns are low and are likely to stay low. What's the impact on my retirement pot? How do I model to understand what I should be doing about that? Can I do anything about the fact that I may live 10 years longer than people are predicting what would be the impact on my pot? And so technology brings us closer to our money. It helps us to engage, to feel confident, to know what our money is doing. And, you know, the UK, this is so critical. There's 12 million people who have anything between 50,000 up to five million pounds of investable wealth. That's a huge, huge market. And the service is just generally not changed enough to be able to service that huge community of people. So overall, I would suggest that a significant number of that huge slice of people are basically being underserved and overcharged potentially. One, one of the things I noticed, I was on the, the NetWealth website, which is excellent. It's netwealth.com. And, and on there, it, there, there's a bit about the fees. And is that the technology that's driving the fees down, Charlotte? Largely speaking, yes. So what we've been able to do is take a lot of the inefficiency that exists in the sort of the processing, the operational side of businesses that we're able to do in a straight straight through processing format. And that has meant we can bring the fees right down. And and as a result, it means that what people are paying for is the sort of the bit they should pay for, if you like. So, you know, the centralized investment management and then the advice if they wanted. So I think it's a function of... Over the years, understandably, people's businesses have, have had increasing embedded costs that are quite hard for them to remove if they don't really fully integrate new technology. And, and that's really the area that we've been able to make a big difference in. One, one of the things when I was on the website that I thought was excellent, I mean, it goes on about smaller fees can make a massive difference. And it actually gives examples. And you've got examples of the figures. But what I love is that it then tells you what that means in kind of not in real terms, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of the examples. It's off the website. So it says here a 1% fee saving on 500,000 for 10 years saves someone 75,000 pounds. It then goes on to say that's four years of private school fees. So it's about what it, it's not about the money that it saves, but it's about what that then does. I think that's the important thing. And the other couple of examples there, there's one that says a 1% fee saving on 250,000 for 20 years is 123,000. And that says that's four to five years of extra retirement income. So it's excellent. You've got great examples on the the website there as well, which I just love as well, Charlotte. Thank you. One of the things I was going to ask as well, like in in an ideal world, I mean, your company's sort of fighting things in a, a destructive manner, and I'm sure there's others following suit as well. But in an ideal world, what what do you think the financial industry will look like kind of going forward? I think that it will look more like net wealth, actually, in that I think everyone is gradually moving, as they should, into a format where they're starting to embrace technology in ways that enhance their current model. So it's not instead of, it's an enhancement. And I think it's so important across the continuum. So it's interesting because we've had sort of robo-advisors 
start to be present in what I would call the sort of retail end of the market. And they're really trying to address the millennial space. And effectively, we're offering a service perhaps to, to people who weren't investing at the time and, and now are able to invest in an efficient manner for the amounts that, that they've started to save. But I think, you know, over the long run, we would expect to see different ways that businesses are able to combine human expertise with technology all the way out to the most high net worth end of things. And I also think that we should expect that as a result, financial consumers are able to interact with their wealth and understand it and engage with it in a way that I think just hasn't been the case. And speaking from personal experience, that was the case for me. And it's something that is brought up over and over again by clients that I speak to. And I think one of the interesting things about this lack of engagement, going back to the point you were making, Phil, about why we spell out what saving money on fees does for you, is that we are a really odd industry. We're the only industry, pretty much, that doesn't invoice its clients. It just takes the fees out of the pot that we're managing. And so it means that people simply don't know sometimes how much they're being charged. They don't really understand. They, they might see a number, but it doesn't add up to anything for them, which is why we've, we're trying to go out of our way to help build that understanding and, and let people realize, oh, you know, it's another term of school fees or it's a skiing holiday or my retirement pot can extend a further five or 10 years if I'm able to reduce fees. So I think I actually have a sort of pretty big picture view on this, that if we can get this right, it will actually have an impact that go, will go well beyond us as individuals. If you think about creating real efficiency, you could, you could even argue that the UK economy over time will benefit as you create these efficiencies and people feel more confident about the money that they have and then the money they can spend. So it, it's a sort of it starts small with the individual and it grows large in terms of what the impact over time could be for the UK generally. Charlotte, just a, a sort of an aside Yeah, I'm thinking about the, the involvement of technology within your, your structure and you saying that it allows and enables the client to look more at what their money's doing, how it's influenced, you know, the things that are influencing it. And I wonder then, are your clients taking advantage of this because they know what they're doing or is it a case of this is explaining to someone who doesn't really have much idea? Or is it a mixture of both? Yeah, that is a great question. I think that very few clients come to us because they are desperate for better technology. I think that that is not something that they've necessarily recognized as being transformational. But what they have started to realize is that things should be done a little bit differently. And they've started to question why perhaps they get these reports from their wealth manager that they don't understand and or why the charge, if they have understood it, seems to be very high while the performance isn't what they expected. So there's little things that are starting to sort of eat into their consciousness. Mm. What we do find is once people engage, the technology becomes very important in a way that people probably hadn't originally understood. And that's because it's quite empowering. So by being able to, to have the visuals and to be able to sort of actually see what your money is doing and start to get a sense for why it's behaving the way that it is, I think particularly thinking about lining up 
investment goals or life goals with your investments is something that technology is very good at helping mm. people understand. So in a way, we become sort of technology converts over time. And, and that's interesting, partly because the, our client base on average is, is in their 50s. So, you know, the people like us, they're people who are, are definitely not technophobes, but nor are we, you know, living and breathing it day in, day mm. out, perhaps like our kids. So I think it's important to set the tone right in terms of recognizing where humans stop and technology starts. And like I said, for me, that it's really a function of getting both right. Something I always think as well, Charlotte, from the outside looking in, is, is that the, the, the finance industry is still very much one of those which could be criticised for being pale, male and stale. It doesn't seem to have changed that much in a long time. You said that yourself, the way that it practices. Even now, you being a part of it at such a high level seems to be, for me looking in anyway, the, the exception, not the norm. And undoubtedly an industry so heavily stacked with men focuses on men more. We did a show not that long ago, which uh, I'll be honest, I didn't think we threw up as much as it did. It was episode 91, Financial Planning for Women. And when you sit down and look at it, there's a whole heap of different advice applicable to women, but I don't think that advice is given all that readily. Is that something you're looking to change as well? Yeah, I was so pleased you did that show. So well done. I mean, I, I think it's a sort of fascinating thing. Roughly, you know, 50% of us are women. And yet in the <laughs> wealth management industry, it's a very male dominated sector. And women have been neglected in their financial journeys more generally. I think there's a few reasons why women have found wealth management off-putting, and it's quite often due to the types of interactions they've had. So sometimes they're patronized, which is not comfortable. Language that's being used is, is impenetrable. It's often quite a transactional relationship that is being built, and people talking about product and, you know, outperformance rather than thinking about goals and, and the way that women often will try to line up what they're specifically trying to do for themselves and their families versus um, the money that they have in their pot. And I am super focused on this. In fact, interestingly, almost half our clients are women, which I'm really, really happy about. And, and you know, that should be the way it is. I think in, in general, by the way, the industry is more like 23% women, you know, so, so I'm happy that we've really started to change that. But one of the reasons I'm so focused is that women's financial lives, as you were just mentioning, John, are actually different and actually more complex quite often than men. And the, the reason is pretty simple. I mean, one thing we have to deal with is maternity leaves, then childcare, divorce is now happening a bit later. So often by the time divorce happens, you have, you know, kids to think about and suddenly you're on your own. Women tend to take care of elderly parents more often or elderly in-laws. And then at the end of it all, they quite often outlive their partners. So it, it's a pretty bumpy ride for women. And as you know, I mean, until recently as well, it certainly hasn't been a level playing field in terms of, you know, salaries and, and pension accumulation. So all in all, there's a huge amount of work to be done on this particular area. And it, it is, as you say, correctly, one that I'm very focused on. And I think the fact that we're roughly 50-50 male, female clients, it goes back to this point of, if, if you don't rely just on the human, you're able to bring together these different aspects of having technology support the human, it, it actually allows different consumers to respond to the service in ways that suit them more. And one of the things we do is we're very focused on people choosing how they invest specifically lined up to financial goals. 
And many of our clients will have more than one portfolio with us because they'll think, okay, I've got a pension, I've got some ISAs, and I've got a taxable account. And my pension, I'm not going to touch for a long time. So maybe I put that on much higher risk. But perhaps I've got another pot that I'm thinking about, okay, this I want to put towards educating the kids. And so there will be termly drawdown as the bills come in. And so I'm going to have that on a lower risk. And interestingly, going back to the female side of this, women, as you know, are great multitaskers. And in a sense, being able to think about our finances like that and compartmentalize them is a natural way for us to think about how we try to meet those financial goals. Right. I, I was having a look. There, there was FCA data that came out just recently, and it was saying that only 16% of regulated financial advisors are women, which I find just that staggering statistic. I know at my firm here, 40% of the advisors are, are female with, with us, and I, I just find it quite incredible figures that in this day and age, it's still, still like that. But uh, one of the other things I was keen to, to speak to you about, Charlotte, was I know financial wellness is something that you're you're quite big into as well. And I know financial wellness can often help physical well-being, and especially at a time at the moment where inflation's high and people are kind of their finances are are quite often sort of stretched with the the pressures of the day-to-day costs just now. But can you give me your take on kind of like physical, uh, sorry, financial wellness? And because I understand that's something that you're quite passionate about, also. Yeah, I think it's a really timely moment to introduce that idea because we've actually all lived in a very benign investment background over the last two or three decades, whether we've realized it or not. I mean, there was a financial crisis, obviously, and more recently the pandemic, but it's really only in the most recent years that all of a sudden investing has become a lot less simple uh, in terms of the expectation of the types of returns we might get. And What I like to talk about is controlling the controllables, because when we are faced with investment, it feels as though there's a whole load of things that are beyond our control. And we start to panic and that starts to make us feel uncomfortable and lose confidence. So there are really three things I think as investors we can control and and help us achieve that financial wellness that you alluded to, Phil. And one is actually making sure that you invest and you invest in a diversified way. So making sure, for example, that even though you can't control the market and what it's doing, that you are spending time in that market so that your money is invested and you're able to earn returns and you don't rely on having to have chosen the right stock or the right company in order to achieve returns. And I think not putting all your eggs in one basket is a very, very important thing right at the outset. I think the second thing is making sure that we take advantage of the tax wrappers that the government gives everybody. I mean, there are two main wrappers. I know you've talked about this before in previous podcasts, obviously. You have ISAs that we can each contribute £20,000 to, £9,000 for children, and then pensions. And one of the really fascinating things, for example, is I think people have got the message about opening up their ISAs every year, but a phenomenal £620 billion is sitting in cash inside the ISA wrapper. So over 50% of ISA investments are actually not invested. And that is very worrying because the average holding period for ISAs is over five years. And Phil, as you and I know, in an investment you know, in investment speak, 
that is a medium term outlook and therefore absolutely shouldn't just be sitting in cash. And that's all the more true now in the in the current type of environment. And then the third thing that's within our control is this question of fees. And it sort of goes back to what I was saying before, that people may not even understand how much they're paying or understand the impact of those fees on their outcomes. And it actually is something they can control. If people understood that just that little tiny 1% extra they're paying every year in fees can actually reduce over 10 years their capital amount by 14%. So for every 100,000, 14,000 pounds is being paid to somebody else unnecessarily, that's the sort of thing which I think, again, would contribute towards ensuring we have financial wellness, because then the things we can't actually do something about, so we can't control inflation, we can't control longevity, we can't control what the markets do, but they're actually all things we can model for. We can understand the impact they have. And and if you can model for them and then control those three things we talked about, I think you you get a long way to achieving this notion of financial wellness. And and I think control is one of the things that in life generally typically gives us, you know, greater confidence and and that higher level of of wellness that we are discussing. That's excellent. I I know recently NetWealth conducted some research on how dramatic life changes can impact people's financial situation. So, for example, maybe going through a divorce or the death of a parent, that sort of thing. What, what were the main findings from, from that research, Charlotte? Yeah, I mean, there are clearly significant life stages, if you like, that are the points that make us sit up and, and think about, okay, what am I going to do about this? Divorce is definitely one, a death in the family and an inheritance. But funnily enough, I think the most interesting aspect of the research is actually retirement. And if you think about it, across Britain, everybody at some stage experiences that. And what we found was that the regrets of those who've already retired, I think, are learnings that we should all take away. So we actually found that 25% of retirees, so these are people who are, say, mid-70s or more, had underestimated how long they would be retired for. So they'd underestimated just how long they were going to live. You know, people talk about retirement, and I think they forget sometimes this is multiple decades that they will be working with that retirement pot. So they wish they had worked with an advisor before they had set out on that retirement journey. Two-fifths of them, just under 50%, actually wished they'd just been better prepared for later life care costs. So that was another thing that sort of underestimated just how much they might need to put aside for that. I think even the younger generations are looking like they make they make the same mistakes. So only 50% of pre-retirees have really got a clear idea of how much money they might want later in life to live comfortably. And only 20% of them are actually working with an advisor at the moment. So it's there's a bit of a disconnect, I think, between this, you know, we all work away like we're saying, we're, we're busy, busy doing all what we think we need to do in order to achieve that wonderful moment when we hang up our boots and retire. And then there's that long, long period that you're now thinking about, can I have the sort of lifestyle that I will will want? Am I able to deal with ill health later in life? Do I understand how much I could pass on to other generations? Do I understand how to do that in a tax efficient format? You know, there's a lot of pressures that suddenly 
top up at the stage that we reach that retirement moment. So for us, that was the most dramatic set of feedback we got about specific life stages. Interesting. Just in, in general human terms, Charlotte, I don't know what life's like for you on a day to day basis. My understanding would be that you're enormously driven, you're a high achiever. Generally, that doesn't come without sacrifice and exceptionally long hours. I wonder if you've got anything that you do to help you maintain that effort that you need to expend on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very important to try to find a balance. I had pretty good practice during my years as a banker and being the mother of four kids and balancing a happy marriage and family, trying to find that balance. For me, it's a lot about trying to find the boundaries between home time and work life, fitting in sport and staying fit. And then more recently, I've also in the last six years, I've taken up meditation, which I find to be a really helpful tool to sort of create moments of peace at both ends of the day. And it's very energizing, actually, and which maybe sounds odd because meditation sounds sounds so peaceful and is so peaceful. But for me, those sort of bookending the day with meditation has been really helpful. And I think this is going to become more important as we move increasingly into a hybrid work life because for lots of us and and you two both look like you might be sitting in home offices not quite sure <laughs> but you know I, I'm also working from home at least two days a week and so you you sort of find now that that work has crept into home and home has crept into work and so finding these ways to ensure you you do bookend your day and that you do think about when you're switching off and when you're spending time with family and I think possibly as as a wife and a mother that's possibly more difficult if you think about sort of traditional setup you know I'm meant to be the one who rushes back and makes sure dinner's on the table type of thing. My husband would point out that it's because I married the right man that <laughs> I have been able to find decent balance. So it's definitely a partnership, but it is something which increasingly, I think, matters as all those different dynamics we've been talking about sort of crowd in and we make sure that we, we have those proper divides between work and home. Meditation was something I did a lot during lockdown and I, I found it hugely beneficial and it's the sort of thing I need to get back to to doing that because I, I found it great for relaxing, just for to switch off, especially after a busy day in the, the office as yeah. well. One of the things we've been doing the podcast for, for over two years now, and John would tell you that one of the shows that I love doing is always when we're speaking about sort of goals, whether it's oh, wow. personal goals, oh, yeah. business-related goals. That's the sort of ones that even just thinking about it now brings a, a smile to my face. But I, I was wondering, what... what the goal, what's the goals for, for net wealth, Charlotte? And also, like, personal goals. I don't know if you'd be able to share anything like that with us or maybe even your goals for, for the financial industry as a whole. Yeah, I mean, you know, the biggest goal for me is for net wealth just to be transformational within the wealth industry. I really feel as though six and a half years in, we have been able to bring together humans with technology in a way that's never been done before. And I think that this is the way wealth management is going to transform and will be the type of service that is offered more broadly in the UK. I mean, if you think about it, you know, defined benefit pensions are rolling off, investment returns are staying low and are likely to stay that way, I would say, probably for at least the next two, three, maybe five years. Getting on the property ladder is very expensive, looking to stay that way. So everything points towards 
a more modern, cost-effective approach to managing our wealth and ensuring that we all get closer to our money, as we were talking about over that time. So for me, that is a business goal. Um, It's also a big personal goal. I think, you know, it's the sort of thing which we, we live with snippets of whether what we're doing is working every day. So I mentioned some of the emails I get from clients, but also as I come in to work on the bus, for example, and I'm looking around and thinking about, okay, so what are these people doing about, as we, let's say we're at tax year end, you know, have they done their ices? Have they thought about junior ices for their kids? Or, you know, I'll see a, a couple sitting in a restaurant having a nice meal out and I'll think, okay, well, do they, have they thought about whether their partners topped up their pension as well, not just their own one? You know, the, you sort of live and breathe it every day. And I'm sure you guys know what I mean as you look around and you're thinking about your own goals. So it's something which makes me so happy to think about the difference we can make to people's lives. And I also feel that that when we launched NetWealth six and a half years ago, it was possibly less obvious that this was so necessary because returns were so much higher and, and the world was so much more benign. Whereas now I think, okay, this is absolutely critical mm-hmm. given everything that's going on. So that's you know my personal goal, my business and professional goal and something I'm really looking forward to that's seeing neat. play out. I wanted to come on to the idea of maybe a girl listening to this and perhaps wanting to follow in your footsteps, Charlotte. You said nowadays it's something like 23% of you know the financial industry is made up of women. Uh, first off, would you recommend it as a career for women? And has it changed much in terms of opportunities for women since you started out in the industry? Well, I started out in the industry a very long time ago. So... <laughs> it's fair to say an enormous amount has changed. And so when I mentioned the 23%, that is the number of female clients, not necessarily. So Phil was saying that he's, I think, four, what did you say, Phil? 42%? Yeah, I mean, we, we've got, at our firm, we've got 40% of the, the financial or 40% of the advisors here are female. Yeah. But yeah. The, the FCA data was just 16, wasn't it? percent yeah. of regulated financial advisors are, yeah. are actually women, which is just yeah. staggeringly low. Yeah, so so we look more like you in terms of you know gender breakdown among the advisors, and I I think you know back to your question, John, is it a great role for women to have? Absolutely, because I actually think that you need to have different approaches to how you give advice. You know, Agreed. different clients want different things, yeah. and the other thing that I've always felt, and this was actually well before the pandemic is that wealth management is more portable than lots of other skills. So you find people who start off in big firms and then they move off to go and set up their own smaller firm, perhaps concentrating on the area that they live in or or vice versa. I think, you know, you can have time off to have kids in a way that maybe is less easy in some of the, the bigger firms. And just in terms of, you know, you managing your own day and your own workload. I have to say, though, what I would like to think is, that being female just should matter less these days in terms Mm. of how you think of your career prospects. I mean, I've got two boys and two girls and, you know, I can tell you my daughters certainly don't look at their career prospects any differently than my two sons do and and nor should they. But, But back to your point about our particular industry, I think it's a great, great role for women to have. And I think the best possible outcome for a company is actually to have that roughly 50-50 mix so that you can accommodate all types of different clients as they come in and seek advice. 
Okay, let me switch out this next this next question a little bit, digging on board what you said, because I was, and I'll admit to this, I was going to say to you, given that you know you, you're a driving force, how would you recommend young women get into the finance industry? But let me let me revise that, uh, taking on board what you said and say, how would you recommend a young person get into the finance industry? And is, are there any are there any do's and don'ts, or is there no no right path, no yeah, wrong I path? Mean, I think that. The most important thing for anyone looking for a career is to try to work in something that genuinely interests them. And that might sound like an obvious statement, but actually, you know, 30 years on for me, and when people said, well, how come you spent 25 years in investment banking? And the answer is, I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. You know, it was captivating and and innovating and exciting and yes, phenomenally hard work. So the first thing is you need to make sure that you start to learn about an industry and figure out whether or not it is something that interests you. So it's hard to imagine, for example, wanting to come into the wealth management industry and not be interested about what's going on in the world, what's going on in the economies, how that might be affecting financial investments, how that might be affecting ultimately the consumers of those investments. There's a lot of information you can access now online, not surprisingly, to start thinking about, is this the sort of thing that I'm interested in doing? People can listen to podcasts like like Phil's as well to sort of just get a sense of, oh, is this interesting or not? You know, am I bored rigid or is actually this something that I think I could really get my arms around? And then I think, you know, you just need to start talking to people in the industry you're interested in and just start trying to get a sense from them about what are they looking for from young people who are coming into their industry. I mean, I've always, I I speak at um, Speakers for Schools, which is when you have speakers, you know, going into some of the the biggest state schools and talk to people in the A-level years about what they may end up doing later on in their careers. And I always talk about finding a way to stand out So to make sure that you as the young person coming into an organization are making yourself relevant to whoever's higher up the organization and and running it. And I think that is absolutely the case in wealth management as well is, you know, if you're young, hungry, focused, then you can quite quickly work out, A, is this something that you want to be involved in? And B, how do I make myself valuable to the people further up the chain so that I basically grow more quickly, learn more quickly and take on more responsibility? Charlotte, thanks so much for, for being a guest on the, the show today. I've, I've really enjoyed chatting to you today. If, if someone was looking to, to deal with net wealth, to, to have a look at their, their finances, who, who do you typically work with? Is there any criteria for clients? Is there areas that you can specialise in more than others? And also, I mean, our, our podcast goes out across the whole of the UK. Are, are you happy to deal with people all over all over the UK as well? And, and really, basically, in short, why should they contact you and, and how would they do that? Yeah, thank you. We set our minimums pretty low. So our minimums are £50,000. And we will work with people across the UK. We have a central London office, which I'm sitting in right now in, in Fitzrovia. And then we obviously work on a hybrid basis with people across the whole of the UK. We have three different tiers of fee. So we work with people from 50000 to 250 our charges 0.65 of a percent, then it drops to half a percent from 250 to 500, and then it drops again to 0.35 
from 500,000 and up. And I should mention one of the things we do, which is something I absolutely love, is we offer the net wealth network. And that's a way for a client when they come in to bring in up to seven other family members. It's typically family members or friends. And it's the aggregate assets in the network that drives the fee. So quite often we'll find that you know, middle-aged parents will come in as clients of net wealth. They may between them get to over 500,000 pounds with their pensions and their ISAs, and they can bring in younger members, young adult members of their family where the minimums drop to 5,000. So that's been fascinating. 73% of our clients are actually in net wealth networks. In terms of the work that we do, we both run investments for people across seven different risk levels in sterling. We actually offer dollar and euro portfolios as well, but we tend to manage mainly in sterling. And we also offer advice. And one of the things that we've done with our advice offering is to make it optional, whether people, not everyone has to take it. And if they do decide to take it, they can either have it by the hour or they can opt to have it on an ongoing annual basis. So again, it's really horses for courses in that sense. And the best way to to look at us is either to go onto the website, which you mentioned is www.netwealth.com, or to arrange a call by emailing advice at netwealth.com for a taste of what we have to offer. That's brilliant. Thank, thanks again for, for coming on the, the podcast, Charlotte, and I wish you every success in the future. And it's been great to, to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Very much enjoyed it. Now, Phil, we we all do this, but you find inspiration through various people you admire and you love a quote. I'm wondering what you might have on the subject of today's show. I'm going to call it women in finance. (laughs) In the unlikely situation, we'll find any quotes which are about Charlotte herself. So what have you got for today's show? I did actually have a look on the internet to see See if if there's any quotes on there. But (laughs) the, The quote I've got this week is from someone called Alexa von Tobel, I think is how you pronounce it. A good financial plan is a roadmap that shows us exactly how the choices we make today with a, will affect our future. And we do this bit as well. Have you ever had an instance where you've experienced something connected to today's subject where, you know, you found your own learnings? And again, a reminder in today's subject, we'll, we'll, we'll call it women in finance. But uh, what have you got on that one, Phil? Yeah, I think like it, it's been great speaking to Charlotte today. I, I've really enjoyed hearing about net wealth and, and what it's looking to do. And I... I, I say it in so many of the podcasts, I'm a great advocate for, for people taking financial advice. And I, I think it's great what, what they're trying to do there. We're, we're trying to keep fees at, at a good competitive level. And, and I really enjoyed seeing that bit on the website about the the difference that the fees can, can make. So, I mean, that was great, whether it's, Charlotte had mentioned, whether it's maybe sort of extra private school fees, maybe another holiday, funding more in retirement at the end of the day that's what it, it kind of provides so i was really excited when when i looked and saw that as well so that, that was kind of the, the main things i would take away mm. from the, the podcast today gives a context isn't it when you express it like that now phil is really keen on trying to help you with your queries if ever you want to email a question to us please do and as always we can ask them anonymously if you wish let's get on to this week's contact details Coming up in a second, I'll give it to you after these. Hi, Phil. I heard last week's show on receiving a windfall when you were detailing all the types of things which could be considered to be one and the tax implications which might apply uh, in each and every case. Now, I wasn't quite sure of where I might stand on my redundancy payment. Can you tell me if there are simple, hard and fast rules in it, please? 
Yeah, we, we're redundancy pay. Up to the first £30,000 of that is, is tax-free. If, if you're getting more than that, that's when I would always say it's good to, to seek financial advice because with good planning, there's ways that you can look to pay less tax or no tax at all, utilising things like pension contributions. So that, that would probably be a, a good thing for, for this one to, to have a look at. If they get any holiday pay, it's treated the same as wages, same as well, any unpaid wages, bonuses or overtime, you would have tax and national insurance to pay on, on that as usual as well, but up to £30,000 of redundancy pay is, is tax-free. Okay, next up here's one from Struan in Perth. This is timely. He says, okay, Phil, we've just got a new PM who's inherited a disastrous situation financially. If you were them, how would you propose to fix it? It's a tough one. If, if I knew how to fix it, I wouldn't <laughs> have here. We've had 106 episodes and here we go. This is the, getting the uh, the UK economy to grips in one. Right, go. In, in the UK at the minute, inflation's so high. So I guess con- containing inflation's going to be one of the, the number one priorities. Now, I know personally my energy bills, gee whiz, I've just gone up from about £500. I got my bill, well, they're wanting me to pay £1,027 a month for my gas and electric. And I was like, that's just nuts. And it just, I I think if I was in that position, the the thing I would be looking to try and do is sort of find some way to to kind of bring the cost of energy down because we're away to hit winter. There's going to be an awful lot of people finding things tough the the next week while. But it's not just affecting People on low wages, I mean, people on on kind of average or above wages are going to be finding things really tough the, the next week while. So if, if I was PM, that would be the first thing I would be looking to do is try and find a way to, to bring the costs of energy down. Honest Phil for PM. Would you say as well, before you get in touch with the question, you might want to take a look at our back catalogue because we've covered a fair few topics so far and we may have touched on what you're interested in. I'm Jim Ellis. Thank you for joining us for episode 105 of the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson. And thanks also to our guest, Charlotte Ransom of NetWealth. If you feel you need a helping hand with anything we've been discussing or anything else of a monetary matter, find Phil for finance. Search Phil Anderson Financial Services online or join the Facebook group for the show. Search Personal Finance Community. That's Personal Finance Community on Facebook. Phil's on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Or why not email Phil a question you can answer on a future show? His address is phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. That's phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. Send him your question and Phil could be answering it in an upcoming podcast. And please be assured we won't use your real name if that's what you prefer. Remember, if you found this useful, please rate and recommend us. And please follow us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll get us every week with the info you want when you need it. You'll get all the links you need on Phil's social media. Good luck with your money. Phil's doing his best to help make that cash go further. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks, John. And thanks again for for coming on, Charlotte. It's been great to chat to you today.